Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on Kicking Kicking and and Streaming! Okay, uh... Sorry, what? Yeah, let's do that again. I don't think I heard you. And maybe if you can... Well, I thought we agreed we were going to come in strong on this one. Yeah, strong is right. But, you know, bring it in from your diaphragm. Diaphragm. Lower your register and you don't need to bellow. Listen, I don't know how you bellow, but where I come from, we really put our backs into it. Okay, all this and more on Kicking and Streaming. Chris? (sighs) Kicking and Streaming. everybody welcome back to another episode of kicking and streaming i am your uh potentially third or fourth favorite man in the world christopher and with me perhaps your perhaps your 13th or maybe 15th favorite man in the world bo stuckey sits here with me by my side i don't claim 15th but i don't see you getting well that's the thing i'm at 15 you don't claim it it's claimed for you that's how it works um hmm People have said I am third or fourth. That's people are saying it. Uh, and along with us, we also have a very special guest. Yes, we do. And our guest today is Pia Watson. Pia has been working in film, television, and stage for over a decade. She's an actor, writer, and artist. But most importantly, Pia is the number one fan of kicking and streaming. <laughs> so we couldn't pass the opportunity to nab her. For the show, well, she's visiting from Mexico. <laughs> Welcome, Pia. Welcome. Thank you. I am number one fan, so I'm very nervous to be here. <laughs> Can I just say, I am a big fan of how big a fan you are of this podcast. <laughs> what a delight. Yeah, what a love feast. And a love feast coming to you from the Kicking and Streaming Studios. We're all here, all three of us here in the same place. Whoa, whoa hey, whoa. Where'd wow. you guys come this, from? <laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't happen typically, but here we are. Yeah. Not yet, anyway. We had to move Chris a little bit backwards. Cause <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tend to project. Chris is hogging the mic, so. Well, I don't hog the mic. I just, I'm, I'm generous with my voice. We have to... I've been told I'm a very generous speaker. <laughs> so, our guest is opening things today, and our guest picked a Criterion film. Pia, what was the film you picked? His Girl Friday by Howard Hawks. Ooh. His Girl Friday, Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks. Classic Hollywood Criterion S- film. Starring the, the fantabulous Cary Grant and the equally fantabulous Rosalind, Ru- Rosalind Russell. <laughs> yes, quite, quite a treat. I've actually, I had seen this film once before, back when Bo and I ran a movie club. And wouldn't you know it, my mind being the steel trap that it is, I had completely forgotten about this movie. And so this was like seeing it for the first time all over again. So thank you, Pia, for proposing it, because I'm not even going to call it a trip down memory lane. It was like a whole new memory, a whole new a whole new street. And I enjoyed it. Listen, uh, Bo, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a little synopsis here. All right. And I'm going to pull out the stopwatch. All right. As you may know by now, this is probably our second or third episode where we are competing with one another to see who can get their synopsis the closest to 30 seconds on the dot. Not necessarily the shortest, 
but which one can be the closest to 30 seconds? And I think I may have perfected it this time. I think this is the one, you guys. All right. Are you ready? I'm feeling good. I am. Okay. I'm going to give you a three, two, one. So, three. Uh, oh, oh. Two. Oh, now. Oh, hold on. One. Uh, wait. Hold on. Go back. It already started. I panicked. Okay. Uh, Ace reporter Hilly Johnson has returned to her old stomping grounds at the local newspaper to inform her ex-husband and former boss. Hold on. I'm, go- I'm going too fast. I can't yeah, even. All right. All right. We're restarting. Well, it's right, hold the on. spirit of the film. Okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you guys have to talk over me a bit. That's though, true. For the... Okay. Okay. Three. Two, one. East reporter Hildy Johnson has returned to her old stomping grounds at the local newspaper to inform her ex-husband and former boss, Walter Burns, that she will no longer be returning to work. She's getting married to a man named Bruce Baldwin, a man who's ten times as affectionate and considerate as Walter ever was. Walter, however, isn't quite ready to lose Hilly, so he's... Oh no! I've stumbled! I've stumbled! Walter, however, isn't quite ready... Uh, to lose Hildy so easy and begins hatching schemes to delay their departure and buy himself time to win her back. When a convicted killer escapes from jail the night of his execution, Hildy soon finds herself torn between the prospect of a happy, quiet life with Bruce and the exciting, dangerous world of journalism with Walter. Minus eight seconds. <laughs> and also, Bo... Pl- 38.8. And you press start at one. You have to... Lo- yes. That's fair. Bo did not press start... When he was supposed to, and what? that threw me off. My whole mental state Wait, was off. But actually, that would have given you a second. Yeah, give you more it time. It still yeah. threw me. Oh, <laughs> I'm still traumatized by the the late. Well, that was a pretty good synopsis, anyways. Well, thank you. And in a perfect world, I think we would count that as a perfect thirty. I'd say there was about eight seconds worth of of of. of Listen, you just got you just got Pia's praise. Let's move along. All right. Well, I'm always thirsty for more. Now I've heard Bo talk a few times about the the Hoxian woman. Yeah, the ho- hockey hockey woman. Hoxian. Hoxie. I had it right the first time. You did. The Hoxian woman, and I've never quite understood what it meant, but I think I get it now. But for those of us at home who don't know what that means, Bo, what do you? Well, <laughs> why don't you explain what that means to everybody else who didn't, who doesn't quite get it? Yeah, diving right in. So Howard Hawks is often what we call an auteur director. He had a few uh, staples that he used in uh, themes and characters. And one of these is what came to be known as the Hoxian woman. The Hoxian woman. And the Hoxian woman is a woman who might be described as tomboyish. She often uh, can pal around with the guys. Uh, She's often better at the job than the male figures around her. Mm. Is that good? Sure looks good from here. Well, Hildy, Hildy. when did you get back? Hi, Ernie. Hi, Hildy. Glad to see you. Glad to see you, Where'd you get the hat? I paid 12 bucks for that hat. Back to work? (laughs) No, it's just a farewell appearance. I'm going into business for myself. You're what doing? I'm getting married tomorrow. Why? Again? Are we invited to the wedding? Well, I might use you for a bridesmaid, Roy. Uh-oh. How are you, Murphy? Hildy. What are you getting married for, Hildy? None of your business. You ain't fooling us, are you, Hildy? Fooling us. Look what I've got in here. Three tickets to Albany on the six o'clock train tonight. What do you mean, three? For me and my beau and uh, hats off, boys, his sweet darling mom. Oh, oh that's nice. What kind of marriage is that? It's going to be all right. I'm going to settle down. I'm through with the newspaper business. Can you well, picture Hildy singing lullabies and hanging out daddies? Popping <laughs> lies over the back fence. <laughs> uh, despite her tomboyish nature, you know, that she can, you know, throw back a drink with the boys and all these sort of things, she's not adverse to using her uh, what might be called feminine wiles and attraction and sexuality. (laughs) So 
her sexuality is very quote unquote female, but she's got a male nickname. She's a, mm. often a career driven woman, knows what she wants, and she doesn't have time for a lot of uh, sentimentality or indecisiveness. So this was sort mm. of a, mm. you see these women popping up again and again throughout, in particular, the career of Howard Hawks. And that's how they came to be known as the Hoxian woman. And this film is a perfect example of that because Rosalind Russell as Hildy Johnson, you know, I mean, they full out call her a newspaper man again and again throughout mm. the film. And yeah, she's, yeah. yeah, she's very much one of the boys. Hmm. Well, and we're probably getting to this later, but the part was actually written for... For a guy. Exactly. Originally. Was it? Really? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I had no idea. I can see that, actually. Because, I mean, apart from the fact that she is, you know, she and Cary Grant are each other's love interests in the film, apart from that, her part easily could have been written for a male character. So that's interesting mm-hmm. that you say it was originally written for a male character. It, it, it makes me think a bit about uh, that quote from George R.R. R. Martin, where um, they ask how he writes such good female characters. And he says, I don't write female characters. I write characters. Mm-hmm. And so it's... I can kind of see it now. like Because a lot of times, you know, like there are times where there's a, a film that features like a, a strong female character type, but also it is distinctly feminine. It's distinctly a female role written for a woman and they'll nail the part and everything. But I can see now uh, Hildy in this film, her her main driving struggle, her interests, the her ambitions, that is all universal, I think. that's mm-hmm. It transcends any gender norms, especially any that would have existed you know, back in, in 1950 when this was made. 1950? 40. 40. 40? <laughs> a decade early. Amazon lied to me. I think it said 1950. It's not my fault. Yeah, and there, I don't know, the film speaks, or it makes me think a lot about, um, I don't know, different aspects of feminism, but mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of strange because it's not, I mean, it's 1940s, and uh, the Hoxian woman, or Hildy, is, you know, she's getting along with the, the newsroom and all the guys. But what she wants is to go back to being a quote-unquote woman. And, That's you know, true. And yeah. getting married again and being treated like a woman. And so it's, um, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's interesting how it plays with that. I like that because it's, uh, it's interesting because even today you'll get films where you'll have kind of a driven, kind of fierce, like strong-willed female character where the feministic qualities themselves are part of the driving theme. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, it's it, it's it's a component of a larger story where... Because, you know, you, you kind of get the feeling with some movies that at the end of the movie it's telling you how to be. You know, it's saying like, well, this character clearly had it figured out and this is the right way to live a life and stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this film... Uh, I thought they did a good job of of showing that you know her desire to settle down and get a house, even that was not necessarily a feminine wish. You know, to settle down, get, get away from the, the bustling life of journalism and stuff like that, only to find yourself snatched away by the the excitement of the of the job. And mm-hmm. it, it's really cool that um, they were able to depict such a nuanced view of of gender dynamics and stuff in, in the 1940s without even without even necessarily calling attention to it. It's simply there. I like that. And we already opened the door so we can say now that this this film is based off a play called mm-hmm. The Front Page. So the, the Front Page is written, it's a hit play. It's made into a movie, The Front Page, same name, Ooh. produced by Howard Hughes, and then later remade by 
into this iteration by Howard Hawks called No Relation, called His Girl Friday, and uh, remade again as the front page by Billy Wilder actually yeah. in the Susan Sarandon. Yeah. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. Ha. And I, I've not seen that version. Well, that's really cool. But. But th- this one is the one that uh, is the most famous, although the play is still done. In fact, it was done a couple of years ago with John Goodman. Oh, really? I'm not sure who else, but... Playing the part of Walter? I don't know. I don't huh. know. But in the in the play, the front page, uh, the both it's Walter and Hildy is a man. And so it, they're not a, a couple, but they're, you know, friends and he's trying to get him to stay on the paper and so on. Hmm. And that's the, the premise. And... There's a couple different versions of the story, but in in one interview, Hawk says that he was doing sort of a table read of the of the script in preparation, thinking about it as a film, and he had a woman reading the part just because there was a woman available there for to help with the reading, mm-hmm. and then decided this part should be for a woman, and talked huh. to Ben Hecht, uh, one of the great screenwriters and the author of the play co-author and Hecht said, yeah, I wish, I wish we'd thought of that. Like it, it makes, it makes sense. And they obviously then incorporated, you know, the divorce aspects and so on. But interesting because this comes right in the, there's a sandwich of Cary Grant divorce comedies, right, right here at this time. (laughs) We had the awful truth just before, which has Cary Grant trying to get back with his ex. And it actually has Ralph Bellamy, the Bruce Baldwin character oh, playing the new the new bow. So you got you know essentially repeating that here in His Girl Friday, and then also this year comes at uh, the Philadelphia Story, mm. which is Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart, Stewart, and also Cary Grant trying to get back his ex wife. So oh. Oh, I thought you were going to list Cary Grant as the fourth cast member. After oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's got Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, and Cary Grant. A bit before this one, Howard Hawk, wait, wait, where is it? Yeah, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. That's mm. uh, mm. uh, that's later. Oh, it's later? Mm. Oh, I thought it was before. But it's also uh, the story of, you know, instead of two guys going out to get girls, it's two girls going out to get yeah. guys. So it's like this gender yeah. role change. Or... Wow. And, and what about the, I mean, it, it's not a term, the Hawksian men, but... Yeah, but there are... There are very typical Hoxian mm-hmm. men, um, and I, I think they're typified by a few things, which we see in in this film a bit, mm-hmm. and certainly in his in his wider filmography. And that's they embrace a sort of stoicism, and they never dither. They're sort of self serving. They can be a bit conniving, even if they're charming. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a lot of machismo, and they, yeah, they definitely don't get into any uh, sentimentality or indecisiveness. Mm. Uh, Howard Hawks abhorred that kind of thing and and his characters, whether they were Cary Grant, Cary Grant with whom he worked a few times, or John Wayne in other films, mm-hmm. exhibited those characteristics, certainly. And, and they, yet, No, they sort of don't change. You know, they, they start a certain way and they... If you look at Cary Grant at the beginning and at the end, mm-hmm. I mean, Hildy, the, the, character, the character of Hildy does change. But Cary Grant's just... I mean, basically, it starts... Uh, it, it ends almost as it started, just yeah. with the difference that they're going to get married. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's interesting, too, because this movie is sort of a Cary Grant sandwich. And that was reflected in the synopsis that you gave, Chris, because mm. you talked about the two bookends of the film, which are when mm-hmm. Cary Grant's character, Walter, 
is there and pulling the strings. But there's this middle section of the film, which concerns the heart of this newspaper story that they're all going after. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a substantial portion of the film, mm-hmm. but, you know, didn't make it to the synopsis and kind of, I mean, it's, it's very much there. But like I say, it's sandwiched between the, 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 the <laughs> Cary Grant aspects of the film. And yeah, and that's following the murder of a colored policeman mm. by um, by a Mister. Hold on, yeah, uh, Earl Earl Williams, Earl played Williams, by John right. Quaylen. Yeah, thank you, Earl Williams. Right, and so, and that's the other thing about this this movie, aside from the sandwiching that makes the structure a little weird. It's an it's a great example of screwball comedy, and it's also very very dark. It is. It's incredibly dark. I was, <laughs> I was kind of surprised. There, yeah, there are a few moments, especially toward the the final act of the film, where some some developments occur that I had to sort of stop and and stare and wait. Did that actually? Did, did that actually just happen? Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, and even its its whole ethos is very cynical. Like nobody comes out of this really looking good. Yeah. I mean, if you if you get at the heart of what they're doing, even Hildy, who tends to be the most sympathetic to Earl Williams, she's coming at it at a very cynical angle. You know, it's all yeah. how do we mm-hmm. twist this to make the story work? And she's how do always... we sway to which, you know, it's basically there's some people that want the story to go one way to help affect an election and some people want it to go the other way mm-hmm. and everybody's just moving around the chess pieces trying to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like Hildy's always in kind of she's always in pursuit of the best and most interesting story. And yeah. it's that was actually one thing I wanted to ask about. I, I liked the fact that I mean, we have multiple moments where we see a lot of newspaper men all kind of hanging out in this this room next mm-hmm. to the prison. And towards the end of the film after Earl Williams is is caught and taken out, he's taken out in a very kind of pathetic way. But as he's escorted off the premises, the reporters are all running to their phones. We got you covered, Williams. Have it in a minute. Don't try to move. Any time now. I'll count three. It's hot. One. Ready for an emergency. Two. Any second now. Three. Up with it. I got you, Williams. Go ahead. Shoot me. Come, Come on, there. Earl Williams just captured in the press boys. room in the criminal courts Come building, on. hiding in a desk. Come on, on your feet. Come out, boys. Don't try any funny stuff. Williams was unconscious when they opened the desk. Williams put up a desperate struggle, but the police overpowered him. He offered no resistance. He tried to shoot out with the cops, but his gun wouldn't work. break through a whole court in the police. And they're just kind of really adding a lot of mustard and pizzazz to this story of a guy. They basically found the killer in a in a lockbox or whatever that was. What was that? Like a writing roll desk? Roll-top desk. Yeah. Roll-top desk, yeah. Found him in a roll-top desk and took him out. And these guys just give it all this all this flourish and flavor. And I think living in an age where there's a lot of doubt and aspersions cast on journalism in general by the public, I, I thought it was interesting that the film itself, I don't think it had a lot to say necessarily about journalism or reporters or news companies that are overblowing. I think they sort of accept it as the reality of the world the story takes place in where – you know, it's something that they can joke about and poke fun at. But once again, I think as with many issues in the film, it never it never felt like it was telling me what to think about it. Mm-hmm. Although you clearly, I mean, as you watch it, we've all seen news stories where there's clear embellishment in the headlines and trying to use really clickbaity capture phrases and stuff. That's like a, that's a tale as old as time. Reporters wanting to say, you know, I mean, they want to get seen and they'll flare it up as best they can to be the first one people look at. So I, I thought that was interesting that, again, I don't think the movie was about corrupt journalism, but it was just this fun little bit of, of zest kind of thrown on top of all these 
unusual characters. That that scene is one of my favorite, actually, when, you know, when all the reporters start going out. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think about the, the cinematography and what you mentioned about, you know, it doesn't make you think a certain way or the other. Mm -hmm. Even with, I mean, it, the, the dialogue is very uh, particular in this, you know, in this yeah. movie. I, I have some data of, you know, like how, I think it's, like on average, they say 240 words per minute. And then there's nine scenes where they say four words. I think there's nine scenes where they say four words per second and five, no, one where they say five words per second. So it's just, you know, super Holy fast. Holy smokes. And the beginning and the ending of the dialogue were, I mean, it's specifically not important so they could step up on each other. Mm-hmm. But um, it's the rhythm of the whole thing is, you know, it's al always based on sound and words and it's always there. So when you have the silences, it's, uh, you know, that's when they point out certain things instead of screaming. Um, mm. It's, you know, it's always the, the rattle of the noise and the words. And, the, and then when it stops, that's when they're saying something. Mm. So the first silence um, in that scene or sequence with Hildy and, and Walter, mm -hmm. you know, they're saying all these things. And the first silence is when she shows him the, the ring. Forget the other offer. I'll raise you 25 bucks listen a week. Listen to me, you great big bumbleheaded bamboo. I'll make 35 bucks and not a cent more. Boy, are you going to listen? Well, good grief. How much is that other paper going to pay you? There isn't any other paper. Oh, well, in that case, I'll raise it off. You go back to your old salary. I'm like, how do you like that? I'm trying to blackjack me. Well, well, I want to show you something. I'm it's busy. here. It's a ring. Take a good what? look at it. You know what? what it is? It's an engagement ring. Yeah. I tried to tell you right away, but you would start reminiscing. I'm getting married, Walter, and I'm also getting as far away from the newspaper business as I can get. What? <laughs> I am through. And then even with the, like, the sounds, you know, they're talking... She throws her bag and then the phone rings. So it's like, beat, beat, beat. It's all timed. Wow. And then wow. the second silence of the whole thing, it doesn't happen until the next sequence in the newsroom with all the reporters mm -hmm. when Molly Malloy comes, which is also an amazing scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they hear the sound of the, I don't know how it's called, but where they're going to hang Earl Williams. The gallows. The gallows. Oh, the gallows. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. the uh, the following day. Treated me decent and not like an animal. Well, I like your that, the press room, we're busy. Why don't you go see your boyfriend? Yeah, he's got a nice room. You won't have it long. He left a car for 7 a.m. <gasps> it's a wonder a bowl of lightning don't go down and strike you on sin. What's that? They're fixing up a pain in the neck for your boyfriend. <gasps> Shame on you. Shame on you. And that's the second silence. But it's, you know, it's, I don't know how long into the movie, but it's... Wow. Like, yeah. It's these punctuations of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because watching it this time, I noticed that as well, just how those silences really ring out compared to the rhythm of this film. And that's probably... The rhythm of this film is probably the thing that sticks with people the most, mm. I think, as you watch this, the fast talking. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, and yeah. They, they, you know, they use no music. There's, a, there's just a titch of music right at the end of the mm -hmm. film. But throughout the whole thing, it's just... Huh dialogue and i think that's absolutely necessary in a film like this where the clicking of the typewriter keys and yeah. just the incessant screwball scintillating dialogue mm -hmm. really creates its own score for the film i don't yeah. think you can have this film with you know 
blaring dramatic 1940s music playing. Yeah, it feels very raw and very real in that way, which is funny because it is a, it is a comedy. You know, it's mm. you don't necessarily need to be grounded in a comedy, but the fact that they do somehow that makes you drawn in more. And I appreciate the fact that for for a, a movie as funny as this, we talked a bit about this. It's it's really not afraid to get real with you <laughs> a, a, a few times. I mean, the mere idea that you have a comedy that revolves around a man who shot an African-American police officer in the 1940s. And there's all this political back and forth about people who want him dead, people who want him freed. That sounds like a gripping drama. And that particular story about Earl, the guy who, who shot the cop, they don't really dress that subplot up in a clown suit. You know, they don't really... They don't really crack a lot of jokes about his particular situation, about what happened. A lot of the humor happens around it, around this very serious kind of dark story. And then there are moments where it kind of peeks through. And it's funny because those moments where this really dark kind of splash of cold water from reality hits, it's usually in the middle of a particularly screwball moment, which makes it all the funnier. So without even necessarily needing to dress up or call attention to how serious or dark or upsetting this particular story is, it still becomes a comedic device just by virtue of the contrast between it and a lot of these quickly paced, very witty, snappy scenes of dialogue. Even the the characters, as you mentioned, if you, if you think about Earl, the way he speaks, um, I mean, it's so much slower than everybody else. Yeah. And Bruce also, not as slow as Earl, but it's also, and, and you know, it goes with the, the character. It was probably on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bruce is so naive and he's always like not understanding what's going on. Yeah. And his, his pacing for speaking is probably like, a, I don't know, like a, a half a beat off of everybody yeah. else. And Earl's is just slow, much slower. Interesting. That's a, that's a really cool observation because that, I feel like that really kind of subtly calls attention to the idea that no matter what she tells herself, Hildy kind of belongs in this world because mm -hmm. she keeps at pace with that, with all this other insanity. And yeah, when you see how kind of slower and, and kind of offbeat the rest of these other characters are who live these more comparably comparably normal lives although i mean earl isn't really living a normal life at the time we meet him but he's clearly not a newspaper man it's interesting it's, it's a good way to kind of show this parallel between the two worlds that hildy is kind of torn between those characters also i think the movie has less respect in a way for anyone that exhibits any sort of sentiment <laughs> you know, it's it's very it's very cynical. It's pushing in that way, and every you've got to be a fast talking. You've got to be you've got to engage in gallows humor. Yeah, you you've got to be kind of rough around the edges. Otherwise, the movie you you just can't keep up in well, yeah. this game. And that's the way that when you look at the poet, when you look at Bruce, there are these characters that you know they're calling him sappy and 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 drippy, and uh -huh. and they just they can't keep up in this world, and they're going to get swept in the tide of everything that's happening by these yeah. by these characters. I mean, particularly, of course, Walter being the master manipulator of the film, uh -huh. but everybody's manipulating. Everybody's yeah. trying for their piece. Everybody's moving the pieces around, and that's. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me until just now, but Bruce and his mother. I mean, apart from the guy who's getting caught by the police at the end. The, those two clearly get the the worst end of the stick. You know, yeah. they both are are getting badly bruised by the, yeah. these car accidents and getting 
beat up, assaulted, arrested again and again, again and again and again, framed, and and they never did anything wrong. Bruce is the (laughs) sweetest guy. I feel like that's a that is a comedy that is not like you know people talk about edgy comedies. I feel like this is this is a great example of a comedy that really isn't afraid to get dark to take this sweet adorable puppy and bash it in front of you essentially <laughs> because yeah Bruce and his mother I was just feeling for them the entire film I mean I yeah I felt for everybody who was outside of the flow of it I mean even when even when the poet comes in and talks about his little you care for the poem Mr. Burns uh, the poem mm. the poem was great I like the ending especially and all is well outside his cell but in his heart he hears the hangman calling and the gallows falling and his white-haired mother's tears. Heartbreaking. Uh-huh. That's fine. How'd you like to come and work for me? What? Yes, we can use a man like you. All we got now are a lot of lowbrows like Johnson here. Are you serious, Mr. Burns? Serious? Wait a minute. <laughs> his white-haired mother's tears. That's a tough, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, oh, that's kind of sweet. And <laughs> I close up character, it's like, that was terrible. I'm just, yeah. oh, right. I'm probably not a newspaper man either, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but. from from moment one, they're showing you how Hildy belongs in that uh, space. I love the the scene in the bar where the three of them go, mm, and yeah. it's just I mean the the etiquette of um, of Walter is just completely off. Yeah. <laughs> but they're I mean it's just clear that you know Hildy and Walter have the same dialogue and the same way of um, I don't know the just being and talking and then yeah. there's this there's this one shot where they have you have both guys um, and it's just so clear that they're so different and so totally strange. different wavelengths mm-hmm. and even like that that takes me to the sort of like the cinematography paired with the sound and the fast pace mm-hmm. um, I mean the the cinematography is amazing it's by yeah Joseph Walker who mm. was uh, I can talk about him in a bit but uh, every almost every shot, if you look at, I mean, it has so much depth perception. But if you look mm. at the background, it's always moving. Like there's always something happening. And uh, you know, <gasps> if when you're in the newsroom, there's you know you have all the glass doors and windows, so you can see the background um, in the bar also. But even when they're in the newsroom at night mm-hmm. with the windows overlooking the city the lights of the city are also blinking and moving and ticking. And so there's like, there's not only with the dialogue, but with all the visuals, it's always moving and doing something and dynamic. And wow. See, this is just how unobservant I am because that clearly worked on me. I thought, wow, this whole place just feels Mm -hmm. so alive and bustling, but I couldn't put my finger on why. Well, that's a good point because it is very unostentatious. Yeah. You know, it isn't, I was thinking of Citizen Kane, which comes just a couple years after this and, and, it's you know changes filmmaking with everything that that Orson Welles does and and Greg Tolan and Orson Welles the his cinematography which I've always enjoyed is very showy mm-hmm. you, you've got a lot of Dutch angles and skewed perspectives and you don't really get you get a very few of those in this most of the time it's very straightforward the movements are uh, subtle if the camera moves at all but. It's like Pia is saying, I'm glad you brought it up, the, the frame is is deep and it's full of movement. It's alive. It's cinematic in that way. They've taken a play and they've blocked it in such a way that without the camera zipping around everywhere, we're still getting all this movement and depth and mm-hmm. things that you can't capture really mm-hmm. on the stage with the way that, that Hawks is shooting this. Yeah, yeah. 
They're always using the, um, they're not chandeliers, right? But like the, uh, the ceiling lamps. The light fixtures. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. The light fixtures to, you know, you have like the character in the foreground and then, you know, the background and so forth and so on. And they're like all the headlamps. If you look at them, they're kind of near them. So they get lit. Mm. And I think that's like. I don't know the the cinematographer was amazing with you know with lighting and he he was also like a I think he was he was an electrician or a technician beforehand ah. so he's also like an inventor um, <laughs> <laughs> and he invented a bunch of uh like uh well the focus of the lens so th th it must have something to do with that with the light also yeah. that's really cool And that, that actually, um, you, you were also discussing the cinematography at the at the bar when they're when the three of them, uh, Walter, Hildy, and Bruce, are having their little lunch together. One of the things that I, I really liked seeing we we've talked a bit about how you know there's these two separate worlds, one of which is moving like a river, the other is like a you know a lazy river at a water park. You know, just like the one is clearly this very heightened world, and. I really liked, we, you talked a bit about how Cary Grant was this master manipulator, or what do you guys, hmm. probably both said it. Uh, the, he's this, he's always pulling strings, he's always thinking two steps ahead of everybody else, and he's just constantly, when, when he has the guy, he's, you know, he spills on himself, so he has an, an excuse to get away until the guy to give him a call in like a minute, goes over, arranges a bunch of stuff to go wrong for them. Hello, hello, hey Duffy, listen, is there any way we can stop the four o'clock train to Albany from leaving town? We might dynamite it. Could we? Oh, well, maybe we couldn't. All right, now get this. Get hold of Sweeney and send him out of town on a two weeks vacation right away. All right, keep your shirt on. Hilda's coming back. No, she doesn't know it yet, but I promise you she's staying here. And listen, tell Louie to stick around the office. I may need him. Goodbye. And in the meantime, Hildy is counter-manipulating. She's part of this world as well. And so you get one of my favorite moments when <laughs> she's talking to Bruce on the phone after Walter has done his little physical and he's given him the check, the certified check for five, was it $5,000? It was a hefty sum of money back then. Yeah. She's, she's talking to Bruce and he's got a, uh, he's got, he's got the check from Walter for the, for the life insurance that he has signed him up for. Because it, it seems like an oddly altruistic gesture from Walter. And knowing him as well as we do at this point in the film, the idea that he would just give $2,500 to the man who's taking his ex-wife away There's no way. And so Hildy also knows this. She knows him better than anybody. Hello, Bruce. Uh, did you get the check? Is it certified? Certified and everything. I would write my pocket. Oh, in your pocket. That's fine. Wait a minute. Maybe it isn't so fine. Bruce, where are you? I'm in Mr. Burns' office. Is he there? Well, now, uh, look, Bruce. I don't want you to carry that check around in your pocket. Well, because... It... Yes, yes, I know all that, but, uh, Bruce, uh... There's an old newspaper superstition that the first big check you get, you put in the uh, lining of your hat. In your hat. Uh, it brings good luck. I've been a reporter for 20 years. I never heard that before. Neither did I. I know it sounds silly, dear, but do it for me, please. For yes, yes, right now. All right, just a minute. There you are. I've done it. Anything else? <laughs> And then later, of course, he gets... He he gets pickpocketed and he gets his stuff taken away, but the check was in his hat. So, and and she she doesn't even tell him. She, I love it. She doesn't actually tell him. Okay, they're they're gonna rob you. They're gonna take it away because 
again, she's thinking 10 steps ahead. If he's, if he's, you know, if she tells him they're going to steal it, he's going to get paranoid. He's going to overreact. You know, he'll react like a normal human being would in that situation. So instead, she just gently guides him towards the path she needs him to go down so that he doesn't get the check taken. I, I really like that, that we saw, you know, almost like a shoulder angel and shoulder devil kind of situation with, with yeah. Hildy and Walter. And she's also trying to be a woman, so she's trying to have him protect her instead of the other way around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really fun little twist on some yeah. character archetypes, I think. Speaking of manipulation, there was a character that I would like to call attention to. A very special character who I think should be the mascot of this podcast. Mr. Joe Pettibone. <laughs> Mr. Joe Pettibone, played by Billy Gilbert. It's amazing. This he's got to be my favorite human being that ever lived. <laughs> so he's a courier of sorts. He he's brought a message from the governor basically pardoning, well not pardoning, but declaring this murder suspect Earl Williams declaring him insane so he can't be executed. And he shows up, he gives the message to the mayor and the sheriff who are both kind of in cahoots to get the mayor reelected and to get this guy executed. And the whole time they are trying to manipulate him. Now listen. You never arrived with this. Yes, I did. Don't yeah. you remember? Wait a minute, I wait came a through that door and I thought he was Sheriff Harper. I mean, you... Huh? What's your salary? $40. No, don't cut me off. I'd like to make $350 a month. That's almost $100 a week. No, I couldn't afford that. Who, me? Well, who do you think? Now, they need a fellow like you in the city sealer's office. In the what? City sealer's. You mean I should work in the city? No, wait a minute. Yes. I'm in conference. No, my wife wouldn't want me to do yeah, that. Why not? Well, you see, my wife lives in the country with my family. That's all right. You can bring her in here. We'll pay all the expenses. No, I don't think For so. For heaven's sakes, why not? Well, I got two kids going to school, and if they change towns, they'll lose a grade. They're not no, they won't. They'll skip a grade. And I'll guarantee you that they'll graduate with highest... Hold your horses. Don't yeah. hurry up, Fred. Now, what do you say? No, it puts me in a kind of peculiar hole. No, it doesn't. Now, remember, you never delivered this. Yes, I did. No, I... you didn't. You got caught in the traffic or something. No, I came around well, the Well, pretend you did. Now, get out of here. Don't let anybody see Wait a minute. Yes, but how do I know that... Come in I... and see me in my office tomorrow. What's your name? Pettibone. What's yours? Pettibone? Not really. No, no, no. Now, all you've got to do is to lay low and keep your mouth shut. Well, I'm tired anyhow. Here, go to this address. Nice, homey place. They'll take good care of you. Just tell them Fred sent you. Here's $50 on a cop. Will you wait, Olson? I'll, I'll tell you in one minute. Oh, you forgot to tell me what a city I'll explain it all tomorrow. Is it hard? No, no, easy, very easy. Well, that's good because my health is what my wife... Well, we'll fix that too. My wife? Yeah, fix anything. Go ahead. And these guys are trying to think a few steps ahead, but they're not good at it. <laughs> they, they don't have that same spring in their step that the journalists have. So you get this corrupt mayor and this corrupt sheriff who are both trying to kind of, you know, kind of coerce this guy into giving them a freebie. And one of the reasons I love Joe Pettibone so much, I'm going to adopt this into my own life and the way I talk to other people so that I can spread the love. He is simultaneously oblivious and hyper aware. <laughs> uh, as they're trying to kind of rush him out the door. Well, let's have your story, Mr. Pettibone. Well, 19 years ago, I married Mrs. Pettibone. Skip all that. Well, she wasn't Mrs. Pettibone no, then. No, no, she was no. one of the I mean, Jones I mean, girls. Sheriff? This document is authentic, and Earl Williams has been reprieved. I was only doing my duty, nothing personal. Either. That's all right. What'd you say your name was? Uh, Pettibone, wasn't it? Yes. Here's a picture of my wife. Yeah, a fine-looking woman. You haven't seen her yet. Yeah, well, she's all right. All oh, right. well, she's good enough for me. <laughs> and it's, he's calling them out constantly when they're trying to kind of skip over these lengthy 
rants that he goes on. And he's just very politely like, no, we haven't gotten to that part yet. But he's so oblivious to the reality of the situation he finds himself in. And it's so aggravating. And he keeps going and going and going. I could rewatch this movie 50 times just for every Pope Joe Pettibone scene. Uh, I, I haven't seen... Billy Gilbert looked kind of familiar. I think I've seen him in something else. Well, it wouldn't be surprising. He gets six minutes of screen time in this, I think. Does he? Um, but very memorable. Yeah. And I think this was his 107th film appearance in 10 years wow wow he was in high demand and for good reason yeah and uh, yeah I, and i love it too i mean his the way that he reacts a few seconds before he realizes what's happening <laughs> <laughs> creates his, his very special brand of comedy yeah and he's one of the characters too that i think i have a quote from howard hawks here where he says we got more fun out of our leading characters, Grant and Russell, by keeping the other characters straight, Hawks explained. Outside of one reporter and the funny man with the pardon, they were all pretty legitimate. And yet, you've got a goofy reporter character, you've got Pettibone, who gets to come in and be a little bit more absurd. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the characters, although they're very rapid and very witty, you know, they're they're grounded. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're not silly. They don't know that they're all in a comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah that makes for a fantastic contrast. I think because a, a lot of comedies, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the old grandma clutching her pearls about comedy these days. But I feel like a lot of comedy films nowadays don't understand that one of the things that makes comedy comedy is irony and contrast. And for that to work, you have to have a world that is largely normal. If everything is crazy, if everything is silly, then nothing is silly because we don't know what normal is. And so in this, we get a wonderful glimpse of, again, like this this broad range of speeds. I love that you talk about the tempo, like the, these, these, these broad tempos of characters. And you get this very, very clear style from the two leads who are, you know, they, they, are, the, they are the funniest ones in the film, apart from, of course... My beloved hero, Joe Pettibone. And it's kind of funny, speaking of the tempos, I think Joe was almost moving at a reverse tempo. I think he was he was moving backwards in yeah. time with his dialogue, <laughs> which, again, the whole movie is moving at such a breakneck pace. Everybody's just talking so fast. Even this mayor and, and the sheriff are, are trying to get, get pull these strings as fast as they can. And this guy's like, well, now, hold on a second, you know. Mm, he's very Chaplin-esque. Also. He is, yeah. Seems like something out of like a Laurel and Hardy sketch or yeah. something out of mm, vaudeville. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. Hey, did you mention, Bo, at some point that there was a lot of... Uh, when you don't rehearse the words... Oh, improvisation. Improvisation, yes. Yeah, yeah so there was, there was a lot of improv. And actually, yeah, yeah. on that subject, that's going to lead me right into my two truths and a lie. <gasps> so I'm going to hit you with my two truths and a lie, and oh. we can talk a little bit about the improvisation here. I'm going to nail it this time. Okay, so... Yeah, this is the segment, like it says on the 10, I'm going to give three pieces of trivia. Two of them are true. One is a lie. Chris is going to pick out which one. Uh, given that Pia picked this film, uh, we'll let her sit on the sideline if she, and, and we'll see whether she knows it or not too, but this is for you, Chris. So here we go. Okay. 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 So A, Indicott, one of the reporters in the press room, is played by Cliff Edwards, the same actor who voiced the beloved Disney character, Donald Duck. B, he did sound a bit ducky. <laughs> B, Cary Grant's Walter Burns alludes to the horrible fate of the last person who crossed him, Archie Leach. That name, Archibald Leach, is Cary Grant's actual birth name. Oh, man. If that's, if that's a lie, that's a good lie. That's a good one. Okay. C, Rosalind Russell reportedly struggled to ad-lib jokes at the pace of Grant and others, so she secretly hired an ad writer to compose jokes for her to pretend to improvise on set. 
So, those are your choices. Dang, these are good ones. What do you think? Uh, so, the Donald Duck thing, uh, that, it seems absurd, but also specific enough, and not quite remarkable enough, to be true. I think it's true. I think the Donald Duck thing is true. Um, Archibald Leach was Cary Grant's birth name. Gosh. That's a tough one. I'm going to say true. I'm going to say true on that one. And here's why. Uh, <laughs> Rosalind Russell hiring an ad writer to help her seem like she's good at improv sounds like an episode out of Community. Uh, that sounds like a, like a good bit for a sitcom. So I'm going to say... I think I think I think number three. I think I think I think Rosalind Russell improvised perfectly fine on her own without the need of help from an ad writer. Uh, okay, we yeah. have we have your answer, Pia. Do you know that? Do you happen to know the answer to this? Yes, do you want to take I a do. guess? Okay, you know. All right, blink twice for true. <laughs> so, the answer, the false, the falsehood is actually A. No. Yes. No. But listen up. You pulled a sneaky one. Th- this was a sneaky one because Indicott, one of the reporters in the press room, is played by Cliff Edwards, the same voice actor who voiced a beloved Disney character, not Donald Duck, but Jiminy Cricket. Oh, oh yeah, that was creepy. Yeah, he's, oh. he's the voice of Jiminy Cricket. And you can tell if you listen up. Yes. Yeah. Indicott. Thought, really? Also, mm. our friend Joe Pettibone, played by Billy Gilbert, was also the voice of a beloved Disney character, <gasps> Sneezy. From Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> I could see that too. Thing, yes. Yeah. <laughs> kind of an oafish charm. Yeah. But uh, Cary Grant's birth name is Archibald Leach. Archibald Leach. And in the spirit of improvisation, he does improv a line where he says, yeah, that the last person who crossed me, uh, I can't remember what he says, ended up with his throat cut or something. And that was Archie Leach. And yeah, that's his, mm. that's his name. <laughs> uh, and Rosalind Russell reportedly did struggle to match the the pace and the improvisation and hired an ad writer from her brother's agency to help her compose some one-liners and jokes for her to pretend to make up on the set. <laughs> Carrie Grant supposedly became privy to this and used to tease her about it. And yeah, they, and they had a good relationship. I think Carrie Grant was, I think he gave her away at her wedding or something like that. They were close. Oh, they were wow. close. Yeah. I also read that it was because she didn't think her character had enough good lines. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it spun that way, too. And then Howard Hawks uh, encouraged a lot of improvisation, Mm -hmm. despite the sort of breakneck pace of the dialogue and a lot of the great stuff coming from Ben Hecht and uh, what's his name? George MacDonald, I think. Mm. But Rosalind Russell hired someone on the side to, to help her out. Well, good for her anyway, because she she executed those lines very organically. I thought it seemed like she was able to keep up with. Yeah, I all mean, the it's it, everyone talks about Cary Grant in the in this film, and for good reason. I mean, Cary Grant was an absolute master of this sort of thing. His work with Hawks is impeccable down the line, the dramas and the comedies, mm-hmm. and then this one. I mean, his physicality, his suavite. I mean, he he was really, you know, he comes into his own. Right at the you know the end of the 30s and into the 40s, and his career go, lasts you know up into the 60s, and he really is one of the he helps build what men are in the movies, mm. and you know he's famously the sort of blueprint that Ian Fleming uses. Wait, Ian Fleming? Ian Fleming? Ian Fleming? James Bond? Yeah, yeah, see, Ian Fleming. Yeah, Ian Fleming uses for James Bond. Mm. You know, he creates sort of the Hollywood male persona, and he really can do it with 
you know, I think it's impressive the way that he can be uh, always so suave and so debonair and so Cary Grant and also pull off a lot of a lot of silly stuff. And this one in this film, he's more of the master manipulator. But you think of bringing up baby, which is also Howard Hawks, uh, Howard Hawks screwball comedy. And that one, he's, you know, he's prancing around in a robe and pulling Mm -hmm. faces and. And yet, Rosalind Russell, I think, wins the day in this film. It's it's her movie. Yeah, she is spectacular. Both women in this movie are amazing. The character of Molly Malloy, played by Helen Mack, mm. she only has two scenes, but yeah. she's also great yeah. in them. Leaves a lasting impression. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, a really, she very faithfully executes one of the most serious and dark and disturbing scenes in the film, yeah. actually. Yeah. Bookended by some really silly moments. But this really hard splash of cold water in the middle of the film, well, we can, we can choose to leave that as a surprise for our listeners <laughs> if we want. I'll never tell. Watch it for yourself. I, per- wanted, I wanted to talk about the last scene. We, we have to. Yes. 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 So you can scene. spoil that one. All right. We're already spoiling the Mysteries movie. happen. And then dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I really enjoy the last scene because I um I mean we see both characters, Walter and, and Hildy, just basically the same, you know, throughout the whole uh the whole movie. And I mean we've mentioned the Walter character doesn't really change even at the end. Yeah. But her character does have this moment, um and it's it's not only I mean she cries and that you know you know, it's a um it's it's that type of scene. But it's not because of that that it's that I don't know, that it's so powerful, but you actually see her as she is. You know, she's had this sort of persona throughout the whole movie. Um, you know, having to be this, uh, the, I don't know, this other reporter, you know, this pal, this guy wearing yeah. a hat as everybody else. And then also playing a part with Bruce because she has to, you know, the, the, the handle the whole situation with him. And it's not until that, that last moment that she actually, I don't know, that we actually see something different in her. She caves in a bit mm-hmm. at the end there. <laughs> oh, honey. <laughs> Don't don't cry, please. Oh, come on, I didn't mean to make you cry, honey. What's the matter with you? You never cried before. Hildy. I thought you were really sending me away with Bruce. I didn't know you had him locked up. I thought you were on the level for once. I thought you were just standing by and letting me go off with him and not doing a thing about it. Oh, come on. What do you think I was, a chump? I mean, I thought you didn't love me. Oh, what were you thinking, with? I don't know. Well, what is Danny there gawking for? Oh, we have to get him out of jail. Send Louis down with some honest money and send him back to Albany where he belongs. Sure. I think even like even her voice changes and you, it's super funny also. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I mean, you do see that with her, and you never see it see it with him. I think mm-hmm. maybe like a tad in that first scene where he finds out she's getting married. But yeah, mm. I, I don't know. He, he, yeah, he plays it. I mean, it's clear though. That, I mean, he's he's very confident that he's going to get her back. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. That goes. And you do see that moment that sort of shakes him, but it's, you know, it's just, it's for a beat. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. he's continuing to pull all the strings and she's fighting back. But it's almost as though through the whole film, somewhere in the background, they both know how this ends. Yeah. You know? And so they're, yeah, yeah. they're both driving at that. And everyone else is just sort of caught in the storm of their love affair. Yeah, yeah. They kind of 
leave a, a smoldering path of wreckage in their wake as they as they navigate their relationship problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, though everything is surprising in this. I mean, we'll talk about the second one in a bit, uh, which is very different. But at, at, even though you sort of you know that they're going to be together, mm. like you don't really know. You know, yeah. it's uh, yeah. like it's everything that's happening is is a surprise. Yeah, especially the how and the why and mm -hmm. a lot of the components. I mean, the only reason you would see it coming is just because somewhat similar stories have been told before. Yeah, but this film doesn't really give you a chance to think about anything. It just, yeah. it it. It grabs you and it doesn't let go. Mm -hmm. And you just charge through it. And there's not a moment wasted in this film. Yeah. Not one moment. At every single second, yeah. there is either a, a motivation being explained or a gag happening. Often several gags and several motivations being explained all at once. Mm -hmm. You get those brief silences that we talked about. But there's there's no... This movie has no time for any... There's no bits of mm. scenery or b-roll or anything shots, yeah everything is just charging straight go, ahead go, go. it's interesting it makes me wonder if 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 edgar wright might be a fan of this film or of howard hawks in general because i i've got well, a similar... it's one of tarantino's favorites yeah. oh is it and he i would say Another, he yeah. has very similarly adopted that style where it's uh, you know, Edgar Wright's films, I think of Hot Fuzz. That's a film that's similar to this in the fact that not a single shot goes wasted. Mm -hmm. Every single bit of dialogue, every single visual motif comes into play at some point or another. And also the visuals, like every, if it, when I watched it a second time and probably if I keep watching it, there are all, all these cues that, you know, that add to the, to, to what's happening and they're, you know, they're not wasted. Mm -hmm. The, um, you know, I'll mention the cinematography again, which is amazing, but that, uh, you know, the, the jail scene when, uh, Hildy comes and talks to, oh, yeah. and they share the cigarette and, um, you know, that like, th that's a, that's a symbol or when she comes into the writer, the uh, reporter's room for the first time, um, you know, being a pal with them and she's wearing a hat. And, you know, they've, they've, they've uh, held our hand telling us how she's, you know, she belongs to that moment mm -hmm. or that place. And the only moment where she takes her hat and she throws it off is when she says, you know, I'm quitting. I'm becoming a woman. But it, it's just filled with all these symbols um, mm. all around that... You know, maybe when you watch it, you don't um, you don't pick up on them, but they do something in your subconscious, or you yeah, know, it just yeah. adds to your understanding of it. There's a That's lot of little great. moments of flavor like that. I'm thinking as well of um, the one of the reporters charging in with his with his write up, and as he's reading it off the card. You can. It's scribbled on like some sort of an envelope, and he's and he's dictating to the to the typist, and he's turning the envelope around <laughs> and around because he's got it like scribbled in all these different ways on wow. the edges. Yeah. Just these little moments that 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 don't need to be there, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah. add all this, and the, there's dozens of them throughout the film. Mm -hmm. And again, it's one of those things that you may not even notice because of the pacing, which we keep talking about. Yeah. All these, these little things that make it feel like a world that you yourself are inhabiting while you're watching the movie. And that's actually, I mean, it's actually something great that you don't notice those things because, I, mm -hmm. you know, as, as it's kind of nice to watch a film and not, uh, you know, dissect it as we, yeah. we do when mm -hmm. we watch one. 
and just you know just ha- let it sink in uh so you know for an audience to just sit down and don't necessarily know why you're loving it mm-hmm. you know maybe you don't know you don't notice this thing about the lighting or the cinematography or those details but you know that it's you know th- it comes down to something as simple as i like it or i don't like it yeah yeah, yeah. it's having an effect this is one of my go-to films for people who think that they don't like black and white movies this uh, you know that are kind mm. of out of touch with that hollywood scene this is the one that i show them because i think it pulls you in it has a sensibility that registers today and you don't have to spend time in any sort of context it's mm-hmm. just it's very funny and it's driven and any time that i've I, i've screened this film lectured on it did it for our movie club back in the day and any time that i've had to watch a snippet for this or that reason i find i i it's hard for me to stop i watch just a little clip to remind myself of something and I just keep going because Oops. it just draws you in and you just can't, you can't turn away. Guess I'm watching this movie again. Yeah. So speaking of workplace romance in the, in a fast paced, brutal environment of dog eat dog and whatnot and so forth and etc., I picked the Netflix romantic comedy, set it up starring Zoe Deutsch or Deutsch. I believe it's Deutsch. Named for Deutschland, also known as Germany to the layperson. Uh, Lucy Liu. T- Liu? Lucy Liu. Oh, my word. <laughs> uh, am I pronouncing this one right? Tay Diggs and Glenn Powell. Uh, it's a fun little cast we got here. Bo and Pia, I had you guys watch this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Already, I've got the synopsis here. You got your synopsis? To get everyone in line. I would love to see you come within eight seconds of 30 seconds the way that I did. We'll see if you can rise to the task. You ready, Bo? Okay. Don't mess up. What's going to happen? It's a psychological trick. You get inside of his head. Don't mess up, Bo. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say three, two, one. And when I say one, hit it. Okay. Three, two, one. In this multi-layer meta rom-com, Charlie and Harper are both lapdogs to their absurdly capricious and demanding corporate bosses. Seeking more freedom and less overtime, they realize their respective bosses are are conveniently single and possibly attractive to each other. They begin to play a bit of Shakespeare de Bergiac and orchestrate an elaborate match using their positions to pull the strings, meeting innumerable obstacles in the aggressive egotism of each boss. In the process of choreographing, Charlie and Harper find their own relationship developing from co-conspirators to comrades and perhaps something more. 35.95 seconds. You were so... If you don't count my my stumble bumble, I, I was... I I took it easy because I knew I had plenty of time. <laughs> Mr. Leisurely Pace over here. All right. Well, all things considered, Bo, not a bad not a bad synopsis. It was like I was watching it all again for the first time. So let's talk some set it up. Let's talk some let's talk a little ROM, maybe a little calm while we're at it, huh? <laughs> so as you said, Bo, this is a movie about love. More importantly, it's about assistance with terrible bosses. What did you guys think? What did you think of the movie? I have thoughts, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bait you into saying your thoughts. I'm gonna make you feel silly with my thoughts. <laughs> I think I'm easier than than Bo. You know, I think they're completely different movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I think it's something that you know delivers on what it is telling you. It's going to say. 
It doesn't have any surprises. You know, it is one of those films where you know what what the story is going to be and you're just going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably on the beats where you're expecting to get to get it. I did laugh a bit. Um, I thought the actors did a good job as well. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree with you, actually. Yeah. I, I actually really... I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. This is probably the first streaming original that I've picked where I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I think most of the ones I've enjoyed, I went in thinking I would probably like it, but I've never been much of a rom-com guy. This one I thought was, I mean, it's no Hawks film, but I thought it was pretty sharply written. There is some pretty witty and snappy dialogue. There's some pretty good lines that are kind of, don't give you a lot of time to dwell on them. It's just from one bit to the next. Interestingly enough, I did not know about the critical reception to this movie until after we watched it. Have you guys seen the the critical response? So it's it got a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but a 62% on Metacritic. So that's a pretty pretty wide range. But Rotten Tomatoes is aggregator. They you know, they they have a whole crazy algorithm, but it's interesting Re- reading a few other people's thoughts on it. I I found myself agreeing with a lot of it in that Pia, like you said, it doesn't really cover a whole ton of new territory, but it treads that familiar territory with, a, with I'm not going to say grace, because this movie is not very graceful, but with an ease and a breeziness that I think is hard to find in a lot of rom-coms nowadays. And at the same time, it does feel very modern. It doesn't feel like a callback to necessarily classic romantic comedies in, in any way other than maybe the unintentional tropes, but... I, I was I was pleasantly surprised with how fresh it felt, considering how familiar the territory was. I didn't know much about the director and mm. uh, the Claire Scanlon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, she's uh, directed The Office. She has a, a couple of Emmys, or, or at least she's won one and been nominated a bunch mm-hmm. of times. Um, yeah, so it just, uh, the, the, I don't know, the work that she has done before just seems consistent with this as well. Yeah. I think it does have a, there's something of the TV comedy pace to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I had that thought several times. I don't know if it's part of the sort of smooth Netflix veneer that's over the over the film mm-hmm. in the production design and the color palette, but something about it had that breezy, light, quirky TV feel to it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it, it, it's like we're saying, it follows the rom-com formula. One of the staples of Hollywood is the is the rom-com. It plays around a bit, tries to get meta, you know, the rom-com within the rom-com. It's doing, like I said, alluded to earlier, the Shakespearean, you know, Twelfth mm-hmm. Night. They hearken to Cyrano de Bergerac in the, in the film, you know, the, the, the setup that they're doing. Yeah. And they talk about meat cutes in the film, which is a a staple. So you get some meta yeah. terminology in there, but not to the extent of something like, you know, when Harry met Sally, where they're flipping things. Yeah, yeah. It's playing it straight. It's going to have the crisis at the moment that you think the crisis is coming and mm-hmm. the characters are going to go mostly where you expect them to go. Yeah, yeah. But it does keep things light and interesting. One thing that I did find that put me off for. A fair bit of the film, uh, in particular the the opening bit. Even though I found jokes in there that were pleasing, I felt that what was missing was the sort of contrast and irony between the characters, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I felt that every character in this 
was operating at, you know, at 10 or 11, essentially. They're, yeah, they're yeah. all quirky. They're all aggressive. They're all turned up to an absurd, silly level. And that goes across the board. Yeah. You know, whether it's a waiter to the to the leads, to the bosses, everybody's operating in that. You don't really have any character bringing the tone down to give you some comparison. Now, what does yeah. happen is as the film progresses a bit, you do start to add a little bit more of the actual sentiment into the film. Mm-hmm. But for that first hour, I would say, mm-hmm. I I was struggling a bit to engage with the film just with everything happening at this silly level. Again, yeah. I could get – there was an occasional joke lobbed out that landed for me. Mm-hmm. But it was almost that I was just sort of watching this barrage of, of jokes as might fit into one of these kind of cynical, quirky television shows mm. only extended over a feature length. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very fair point. It's funny because we were just barely talking about – Howard Hawks and how his girl Friday had a lot of straight man characters for, mm. for the leads to bounce off of. Yeah. Because again, I'll stand by my statement. I really enjoyed this movie, but it is not anywhere near as successful a comedy as his girl Friday, specifically for that same reason I stated earlier, which is that we need to have an idea of what normal is. And they're, they're actually probably, I, I'm going to say maybe one of my least favorite parts of set it up was actually the side characters. I, I I really liked the two leads. I I liked their their bosses. I thought I thought that especially the two leads, uh, Harper and Charlie, played by Zoe Deutsch and Charlie, played by Glenn Powell. They I thought they had great chemistry. It was fun to just watch them interact with each other. That felt very organic and and light and fun to me. But speaking of the characters, Duncan, played by Pete Davidson from SNL. Uh, Becca, played by Meredith Hagner from Search Party, and Creepy Tim, played by Titus Burgess from the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. You get this vibe. Actually, I think that this is a something that comes up in a lot of modern comedies. And I don't wanna I don't wanna poop in anybody's cornflakes by by throwing dirt on something a lot of people seem to really enjoy, because there's a reason they do it so often nowadays. But you get this thing in comedies where Side characters, actors come on and they and you can almost tell in their mind they're thinking, now's my chance. <laughs> this character's thinking like, ah, my big break. Time to really, really hit it home. And uh, you get characters like, you know, Creepy Tim, played by Titus Burgess, who, you know, he has a few funny lines and he's a very silly character and everything. But th- there are several lines from him where it almost feels like both the way it's written and the way it's executed – it feels kind of like he's mostly just thinking what's the silliest, weirdest thing I could possibly say right now versus this is an actual creepy man who lives in the bottom of this business building. Do you know what the opposite of love is? Ice. Indifference. Well, that's also very true, Creepy Tim. I, oh. People call me Creepy Tim? No. I love it. And similarly, toward the end of the film, at the, the little low point, the crisis where, you know, our, our, our star-crossed lovers start butting heads, he's looking at jewelry, and then she storms out, and then the clerk says, oh, this happens all the time. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That was it. You're, you're not under arrest. You can put your hands down. We just, we just need to get the ring off. This, this happens all the time. I mean, not the part where... You two collaborate to, like, trick your bosses into dating each other, and then it blows up. I wasn't listening. And she just keeps going and going and going. And it's like, it's a thing that I think is fairly common with with a lot of light 
comedies, especially rom-coms nowadays, where you have side characters who are meant to be sassy X character, sassy Y character, where it's they come in, drop a few truth bombs, throw out some hyperbole, snap their fingers, and then kind of leave a big boom. So that way people come out and say, I liked the so-and-so character. But uh, for me, it kind, of, it kind of breaks the immersion a little bit when, again, when every character is trying to be as silly as they can. I can, I see you, Bo. <laughs> I see you. I kind of think in this one, it's more of a direction um, aspect more hmm. than the, the actors trying to, like, you know, yeah. steal the part. Because, it, it, you know, it, it happens all across. So it's, you know, it's a specific tone that they're Yeah, going for. yeah. But, but it's a great point. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't anchor you to anything else because it's all just, just the same. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually found the, um, the roommate, the, the friend. Uh, Duncan, Pete Davidson's character? No, or the, uh, her, the, her. The girl. Becca, yeah, her, played by yeah, Meredith Yeah, Becca, Hanger. exactly. Um, I, I liked her. I thought she was a, I mean, I, I think she is a, a pretty great actress. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think she was going, like, this thing that you mentioned about uh, actors trying to sort of like, you know, it's my time, it's my moment for mm-hmm. um, breaking through or something like that. Um, I think we were talking about that the other day, Bo and I. Um, hmm. It's like actors can forget that they're playing, you know, that they're just a piece in something bigger. Mm, and, yeah. you know, and don't transition or don't, I don't know, you know, don't play the part and just try to take that emotion to like the fullest. Play it as if they're the lead yes, selling a story. Exactly. And, yeah. and and that sometimes is perceived, so, like you said, just, uh, you know, like too much or just a homogenic tone yeah yeah Hom- homogenous homogenous yeah <laughs> i I, to- I totally get that yeah that's me ma- actually i i did think that becca was probably my favorite side character but that also comes with some bias because i have been watching the hbo series search party mm-hmm. have any of you guys seen that show no. oh she go see it listeners go watch search party it's it's a fantastic dark comedy on hbo and meredith hagner who played becca she's fantastic in that show okay. so she she's got the chops for sure. I think she 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 did a great job as the as Harper's best friend. Yeah, it's a movie that uh, I mean it's so so difficult to make a film. You mm-hmm. know, it, there's oh, yeah. so much that goes into it, and it's actually pretty easy to make a a bad film. You know, <laughs> or a film that most people won't enjoy. Mm-hmm. So and also to make a great film, you know, it, you need a lot. But I think this is actually like it reunites everything for you know being a good film. Mm-hmm. You know, if you love it or you don't like it, you know that's a completely different thing. But but I think the elements, you know, aside from taste, are there for meeting like a pretty good, I don't know, bar. Yeah, I feel like it. it easily clears the bar that was set for it by the genre by the the tropes and things like that like it's i i feel like it's it's one of the best movies of this kind that i've seen in a while and you know obviously not necessarily for everybody not not like you know this oscar winning film i hate when people say that it's not an oscar winner but you know what i mean it's it's not a it's not a high film or anything like that but it is a lot of fun i i, I really did like it one thing i wanted to to mention um and this is all, take this all with a grain of sugar, because I did really like this movie. But one thing that I thought about the, speaking about the humor just a little bit, did you guys notice a, a prevalence of dick jokes oh, in yeah. the film? There were, that's something else that I think is a fairly modern development in comedies. I think that 
the dick, as it were, has become the center of a lot of humor. And a lot of the times there's no actual joke. It's actually just kind of like just saying or gesturing or it's kind of, uh, no pun intended, it's low-hanging fruit. In 500 mm. Days of Summer, yeah, well, very well done. Well done. <laughs> was that, speaking of setting it up, was that what we, were, we just witnessed here? <laughs> I mean, in 500 Days of Summer, the joke is literally yelling the word penis. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I did a version, a play version of that. Did you really? Yeah. And I fought for changing that word. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because for me, I'm, people who know me know that my mind is in the gutter, at least part time. I, I like a good dirty joke if it's executed well. Ooh, hey, hey, here's a little joke for our listeners. A lady walks into a bar and she goes to the bartender and says, uh, excuse me, can I have a double entendre? And so he gives it to her. <laughs> he gives it to her. Uh, that's you, hear that, you hear that laugh? There's Pia, Pia the actress. That's why, that's why it pays to have an actress on the podcast. Uh, life imitates art, Bo. Yeah. That, that laugh is actually my Mexican laugh because I didn't get it. <laughs> You know, the best sex jokes are the ones that half the people don't even get. That's the that's how you know you've done a good a good, a good sexual humor joke. Because, I mean, for me, when I'm trying to think of a good innuendo joke or a double entendre of sorts, the first place my mind goes is, of course, the mighty penis. But any comedy writer worth their salt knows that the dick joke is the base camp at the foot of the Mount Everest of sexual humor. You, you, you set up camp, you hunker down, you get all the giggles out of your system, and then you hike up that mountain in search of a good sex joke. You don't stay at the base of the mountain with the obvious, it's the first thing your mind goes to, right, Bo? But that doesn't mean it's supposed to go in the movie. It's, it's, it's a first draft kind of joke. I wish this was a video because all the faces Bo has been making are priceless. We'll get a Patreon. Pay money to see Bo cringe as I wax philosophical about the phallus. Well, the thing, what you brought up is that often, and it happened several times in the movie, I agree, it wasn't really a joke. It was just, oh, how absurd, how shocking to be saying this word yeah. in this context, which is a context in which it shouldn't be said. But I don't think the film really established that because, <laughs> as I said, for the first half of the movie, everybody's there at 10 or 11. Uh -huh. And with the with how many of those jokes there are, it really doesn't feel that out of place or inappropriate considering what they've shown us in the way that this world operates. Yeah, yeah. It's about irony and contrast, I mean, which is one of the reasons why, as base as the joke is in 500 Days of Summer, there's at least a tinge of humor to it in the fact that they should be embarrassed for saying that word so loudly in public. So you do have at least some contrast to play against for that to have some degree of comedic effect. Yeah, whereas in this one, if everybody's saying it, if everyone's making phallical, phallical, phallic, help phallic. me out, phallic references, that was just a trick to get Bo to say the word phallic. <laughs> if everybody is is doing it, then it just that's just how they talk, and pretty soon it becomes normal. And any shock value it would have had, any any you know giggle inducing shock value is gone within fifteen minutes. So as much as I like the comedy, that dampened it a bit for me. Yeah, and it's I mean not to go back to 
to the other movie too much, but uh, you know what they do with the rhythm in in His Girl Friday with all the you know the the bases, all the dialogue and words, and then you mm -hmm. have the silences. You know that's sort of what takes you somewhere. And here you don't have that. It's just the same yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of a constant flow, isn't mm -hmm. it? And it never gets quite as fast as His Girl Friday, but it never slows down the way His Girl Friday does either. So it's no. kind of you're just kind of inundated and immersed in. Yeah, it's actually something that I noticed also. I, I I was grateful that they, you know, that they gave you what they what you were kind of expecting fast. You know, it, mm -hmm. it it was clear and fast. They they didn't waste time. I mean, not as His Girl Friday, but it was, you know, they didn't linger on things and it was just, you know, it was there when you were expecting it to be and that was also kind of nice because mm -hmm. yeah. you know, it's that kind of movie. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. it's I think this is formula filmmaking. You know, you're looking at a template That they're again, they're not trying to play around with it too much. We know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and the whole joy of it is to see. Okay, let's watch the chemistry here. Let's see what gags they pull off, and let's see whether the actors can can carry this formula to the end. And that's essentially a successful rom com. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, you get the outliers. Uh, in my opinion, like uh, say Moonstruck or uh, When Harry Met Sally that becomes something a bit more. And then you've got plenty that are extremely forgettable. Mm -hmm. And then you've got something where I would put this in that it's got some moments that I'm going to remember and laugh about. It's I get to watch some, for me, basically all new actors, pretty yeah. much. I recognized a couple faces, but not intimately. Mm -hmm. And I get to watch them, you know, pull off their comedy chops and and hit through some of these zingers. And it, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those what it says on the ten kind yeah. of movies. It's a rom com. It's it's a rom com on the raunchy side, and I think that's what you get. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I I almost kind of see it as I'm realizing now a rom com is kind of like a pizza. It's kind of like a pizza because you can have good pizza and bad pizza. I've had terrible pizza before, and I've had some great pizza. You Sometimes you get a pizza, like there's this one pizza at this place called a slab pizza. It's like a Thai food pizza. They have like some chicken and some, some Thai curry sauce and some, some uh, sprouts and things. It's really good. But it's still a pizza. And the reason is, with a pizza, you know what you're going to get. You got your crust. You got your sauce. You got your cheese. Maybe a little pep. Maybe a little pepperoni. <laughs> on top of that pizza. And there's no real surprises most of the time. <laughs> When Harry Met Sally has a few surprises. That's like, that's a Thai curry pizza. But this was just like a good pepperoni pizza with with onions on account hungry. of the sleeves. What was that? I just got hungry. I know, I'm kind of hungry too. <laughs> oh, dear. Actually, with the, with the pizza scene in this movie, I um, hey. something that I, yeah, good segue. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> I, I really appreciated also how they actually kept the leads being sort of friends for a yeah. really long time. And it's not, well, at least for me, um, mm -hmm. it wasn't until that, you know, that pizza moment. Well, maybe at the party, actually. Mm -hmm. But when you, you know, when you first see that look that he gives her and you know, okay, that even though you knew before that's probably where it's going, like it was not until that moment where they actually show it to you. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of nice because it's not, you know, m many times since you know things are going to happen in a certain way, the actors even, you know, just play it 
as it is. Yeah. And maybe it was the director, I don't know, but they, they made a point of, you know, keeping it a certain way. And I like that. This is the best meal I've ever had. In my entire life. I should probably go home. Slice for the road? Two, please. We'll roll it crest side out. I'm a lady. That's a great point. I actually loved that pizza scene for the same reason, where the way that their relationship developed over the course of the movie felt very organic to me very chummy. They both had other romantic interests and there wasn't a lot of pining after the other. Thinking back to just, what was it, two episodes ago watching Love Per Square Foot, the characters are hatching a little fun gimmicky scheme and then within five minutes of hatching the scheme, they're in love. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just kind of, well, we still got an hour and a half of movie left. But, but uh, in this movie, I'm glad that they took their time kind of building that up because that moment when they look at each other, I think that that long stare with both of them with pizza in their mouths, that's kind of the make or break moment of a good or bad rom-com is determining whether or not you feel the tension in that scene. Because a lot of movies will try and pull something like that and it doesn't feel earned at all. There's just a longing glance mm -hmm. and then they just start kissing or something like that. But in this one, they stare at each other a long time and it, it took seconds before I imagined myself in one of their positions and just being like, oh, kind of like... The, it's it's tension, but this is fun and exciting. Where's it gonna go? And then and then the fact that she leaves and that it doesn't erupt into some big thing. Like I appreciated the fact that they would constantly flirt with that tropey line and then just kind of tease it a little, dance mm -hmm. with it a little. They 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 had a little bit of fun with it. And that's uh, on a similar note, another kind of cliche tropey bit, the low point, their 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 moment of crisis in their relationship. I like that the low point isn't necessarily the bosses saying, you lied to me? This was all a lie? Because that's where I thought it was going to come from. I appreciated that it came from a slightly unexpected place of Rick, Charlie's boss, confiding in him rather casually that he's going to cheat on Kirsten, Harper's boss. Don't forget to tell Kiki. About my chef? No, dummy, about the wedding and the date six weeks before hers. Oh, she invited? Send her a big bouquet of daisies, right? She hates daisies. With a note that says, ha ha, I'm gonna beat you to the altar, but tonight we're gonna knock boots like we did on that Swiss gondola. Oh, and obviously, um, what? tell Kirsten that I have a meeting or something tonight, so. What? Well, I just thought, uh, I thought you were gonna marry Kirsten. Oh, yeah, I am. Oh, which reminds me, this week, go to a ring spot, get a ring so big you can see that from space. I appreciated the fact that that was where the, the vision, the fissure came from in their relationship was a disagreement over their bosses that they've been setting up. So I, I liked that they kind of stayed on theme rather than just going, all right, well, what time is it? It's uh, where a little over an hour into the movie. This is the part where they somebody says, you lied to me. And then we, you know. I appreciated that they they did stay pretty true to the format they had set up. And of course, and then I say, oh, well, there you go. There's the moment where they say, you lied to me, where Harper talks to Kirsten and confesses to her. And I'm like, oh, there it is. There, there's the part where a character says, at first it was just a gig, but then it became real, you know. I'm never, <laughs> never a big fan of those. 
But I, I did appreciate that their conflict actually came from the characters as they had been built up because Harper up to this point has been shown to be kind of a romantic. She's kind of swept up into the drama and the fun of the situation, whereas Charlie has been more kind of, you know, he's, he's in the rat race. He's all about do whatever it takes to succeed. And so both of those end up clashing. So it's not so much a contrived forced plot device as it is kind of the natural conclusion of these conflicting character types, which is a thing that happens where people fall in love and then they get to a point where they say, oh, wait, we value different things. And it becomes kind of a crucial moment. And so I did like that even though it at times just dunked its head entirely in the pool of cliche with that low point, I did like that it did maintain some of its unique flavor Mm -hmm. with the way that those conflicts came up. Yeah, I think in uh, overall, the characters are pretty coherent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Harper is, is set up in a certain way and like even her values, you know, because in that pizza scene, she could have almost broken she her could have values. Made a pass or, and... Yeah, um, but, you know, he still has a girlfriend and she she had just said that she doesn't sleep with anybody, you know, with mm-hmm. just anybody. So I don't know, like they, they all seem pretty coherent. Yeah. And in that low uh, moment scene, that's probably the only part of the movie that I thought wasn't really explained, or maybe I was just I don't know too oblivious and it didn't uh, <laughs> I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. But this thing about her sort of like having been in the sidelines and just you know having this job for. I don't know, not facing the actual writing part. Yeah. Like that felt a, a very expository. It did. It kind of reared its head very late in the game, I think. And to me, it felt a little bit like... That's the thing with some of these rom-coms. Sometimes I can feel the writer right there and he's going, here's my list of great gags that I've written down over a while. I'm going to pepper them through this story. I think you do get the characters, their sincerity does shine through in the end. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, it's sort of like, I got all these gags set up. I've got these little truisms, Mm -hmm. these little truth bombs about relationships that I'm going to pepper in there. And also, I know what it is to struggle as a writer. Because uh, that's what I that's what I do, and so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna shoehorn that in there, kind of. You know, writers right? writing yeah. about writing, yeah. have a better combo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah, fair. That's very fair. I think. I didn't even think about that. That is a good point. It's funny because once again, this is me being like, ad agencies love me. I eat everything up because at that moment <laughs> where he does drop that bomb of like. You know, you you stay at home because you're afraid of finding out you'll suck. And it's sort of like the, oh, where'd this come from? This is a problem now. I was thinking like, oh, I've been there because I enjoy writing. And so I'm just kind of like, it's me. I I mean, I'm a sap, I guess, because there's that moment at the towards the end where uh, Harper is kind of, you know, it's that classic. Every rom-com has it. Character is depressed in their apartment, wearing sweats and a hoodie, and they're just kind of hunkered, and their face is pale. And she's trying to work on her article, and then her her friend comes over, and she sees her, and she kind of does like the, hey, pick yourself up, keep at it. And again, I was thinking like, okay, here comes the cliched, like, you can do it. You know, cheer up. <laughs> wow, I'm cured. But instead, she said something that I've only heard a handful of times, but every time I hear it, it's like the first time, because I'm always like, hey... Yeah. I'm bad at this. I've been trying to write the same article for months, Becca. And it's so bad I can't finish it. Ow! Of course your first draft is going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. And then you know what you do, Harper? You go back and you make it better. But you can't make it better until you actually do it. You're not a bad writer yet. 
You need to stop feeling sorry for yourself and just write something bad. Yes, Kirsten was mean, but you learned so much from her. You just never had the time to use it. And now, bud, you got the time. So get off your bony little ass and just do it! Okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna write the shittiest article ever written. Yes! And I'm just thinking like, yeah, yeah! What am I doing with my life? Because that that's a problem I have. I, I enjoy writing, I enjoy drawing. Really, the only creative endeavor I've been pursuing for the last several months has been this podcast. I usually draw and write all the time. And a lot of it comes from this fixation and this kind of lockstep of, like, I don't want to create crap. And so you end up playing it so safe that you don't make anything. And I, I wrote down like, yeah, you go, girl. I got like, I got really into it. I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, write something terrible. I should write something terrible. I'm going to go home and write something terrible. Because you've heard it tons of times. It's even a bad movie has still been released. They made a movie, mm -hmm. you know. And as kind of on the nose as that was, it spoke to me yeah. in my heart of hearts. And the, the cliches and the formulas come from somewhere, you know, it's, uh, you oh, know, yeah. they play on universal values and universal feelings. And, mm -hmm. and that's why, you know, it, it pulls fibers in, in all of us. And then some of us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know, we might not like to see the, the writing, you know, yeah, the writer yeah. or the camera. There were actually two parts in the movie where the, there's, I don't know if you guys noticed it, but mm. two camera movements that are really weird. Um, the first time he goes into his apartment after trying to get into Sue's bed, yeah, there's like this, almost as if there was a, an error with the camera, it goes like... And then um, also in the pizza scene, where so so I like I'm imagining the camera man or woman, you know, in this cramped little space, and probably like somebody pushing a cushion and moving the camera. Mm -hmm. But they didn't, you know, I don't know if it's a, a time constraint or it wasn't, you know, big enough or something. But they didn't reshoot it, or that's the one they picked. Mm. And those kind of details, I think, are the big difference between, I mean, not the only ones, but between, you know, a Howard Hawks film mm -hmm. and this type of film. Because this type of film, it what it wants to achieve is for us to, you know, sit down, look at it, have a good two hours and, mm -hmm. you know, feel this, yeah, well, you go, girl, and probably <laughs> sit down and write. While this other one, you know, it hits you in so many other ways. Yeah, on a deeply human level, mm -hmm. I think. It kind of comes down to this was a... Competent, coherent, perfectly serviceable and fun film. There's a difference between a film that is competently made and a lot of fun and one that is made with meticulousness. Mm -hmm. His Girl Friday is a meticulous movie. Every, every single bit feels, well, it doesn't feel orchestrated, but it is. And because of that, it feels very natural. Whereas there are parts of this that they probably thought were very natural as they were filming, but end up coming off a bit orchestrated because they don't put in the effort to hide it. Yeah. And as we mentioned in most episodes, <laughs> at the end of the day, comparing a competently made with a skilled director and fun actors that have charisma against Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell and Howard Hawks, yeah. you know, is not very fair. We're talking about some of the the great performers of and, and masters of cinema. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's not going to stack up exactly. But it does get over the hurdle that we've talked about. Of, I mean, there's so much... Netflix garbage out there. And, and we're going to get through all of it, baby. <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and this, 
this film does manage to be entertaining. It does manage to get into little truisms, mm-hmm. and it, uh, it it keeps to its formula. But you you know, it's it's not a movie that leaves you full of regret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no regrets, Bo Stuckey. That's going to be on the cover of the DVD. Uh, uh, well, kind of, I was trying to think of a way where I could subtly slip this in at some point as we were discussing it. But as we're approaching the twilight of this episode, I was I have my, I have my two truths in a lie. And they are all cast-centric. So as we were talking about the, the actors and the charisma, I could have done it then. So we're probably not going to edit this. I just want the listeners to pretend that this happened a lot sooner. Bo, Pia. I have two truths and a lie for you guys. <laughs> First of all, Zoe Deutsch's mother is none other than Leah Thompson, best known for playing Marty McFly's mother in the hit film Back to the Future. I, be- I believe that off the get-go. She looks like her. Does she? I didn't notice. <laughs> Second, Lucy Liu was 50 at the time of release. Tay Diggs, these are the two boss characters, was 47, making this the first film in over 20 years to feature a female lead who was older than her male co-star. And thirdly, Emilia Clarke of Game of Thrones fame, the mother of dragons, was originally going to play the part of Harper before it went to Zoe Deutsch. Gosh, those, those two last ones are... <laughs> the the B is very difficult to believe. Yeah, I'm. I I know that it's not common to have a the 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 actress older than the the lead actor, but I can actually even think of what was it first in how many years? Over twenty. 20. That's t- <laughs> okay. You, you, you took a big the, bite yeah. there because uh, I'm remembering. <laughs> I'm remembering this happened in uh, in episode three, Bird Box. Sandra Bullock's Sandra Bullock has got like twenty years on the, her love interest in that film. Ah, hell! You, you gave it away. Hell's you bells. Just laughed and laughed. I know. I'm not good at keeping secrets. <laughs> no, <laughs> this I is a bad. This is a bad segment for me. Well, the funny thing is. I wrote this. I had a little thing off to the side. I was like, I'm going to totally own Bo with a list of films where the female co-star is older than the male co-star. Because there's a bias in Hollywood. It's not common. Yeah. I was hoping you'd take the bait. But, okay, 20 years? Notes for next time. Make it 10. Yeah. Uh, but the, the first film I was going to name was The Proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. Oh. So she's got a history of playing yeah. opposite younger male co-stars. Oh. That's kind of neat. Interesting. Power to her. Yeah. That's great. No, I'm just remembering this right now. I should have brought it up like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, Rosalind, the you know the Hildy character, they mm-hmm. um, I read somewhere that they had a, a pretty hard time shooting her because it like the makeup artist had to like make her jaw just very geometrical with mm. a lot of makeup, and they were also trying to make her look much younger. But I'm not sure how hmm. old she was, because she does it. She looks really young. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Cary Grant was born in 04. Wow. He was born in 04. Rosalind Russell was born in 07. She was only three, oh. three years younger than yeah. old, old Cary. 07, and this was 1940, so. Yeah. It's so. pretty good. Not young enough, I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Apparently. Try harder next time. <laughs> yeah, no, this was this was a fun pair of movies. I, I enjoy I mean I loved I loved the first one. I really enjoyed the second one also. Yeah. That tends to be kind of par for the course with this podcast for me. I find myself I'm seeing all kinds of older films that I've never seen before and I end up loving virtually all of them. And I'd say a third of the time, the Netflix originals or the streaming originals are really hitting that spot for me. Yeah, this was a 0.5 for me. I think I enjoyed the second half of the Netflix film, and hmm. the Howard Hawks film is among my very favorites. So. Yeah. All right. Well, now it's time to set aside our personal biases and to declare for our listeners at home who did it better. Which film was better at which thing? I will lead to set the stage. I think when it comes to which film did a better job making me never want to work in a fast-paced cutthroat environment, <laughs> Set It Up, I think, was better in that regard. Watching His Girl Friday, I was kind of like, maybe I could be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> that seems fun. Whereas Set It Up, I was not envious of these characters. They did a good job showing the miserable life of an assistant yeah. to these big fat cats. Fair I think it's because you could, you, know, you could want to be... Walter Burns being Cary Grant in this film. I mean, you, you know, you have to yeah. kill your conscience, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's glamorous. He's smart. Yeah. You know, he gets, he gets what he wants. He moves around. Whereas the bosses in, in set it up, you don't want to be either of those people. They look miserable. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah. They are just very deeply unhappy and yeah. cold people. Although one correction, Bo, I do not want to be Walter Burns from his girl Friday. I want to be Joe Pettibone. Yeah, <laughs> he's happily married. Right. <laughs> right. See, he loves his wife. Yeah, he's always got a picture of her ready to show anybody. He only well, makes twenty-five bucks a week, though. <laughs> <laughs> but if he's open to bribes, he could do better. Um, I will also say, as far as which film featured the best plucky comic relief character, hmm. I'm going to give it to His Girl Friday because, as adorably fun as creepy Tim was, uh, Joe Pettibone wins by a country mile. I want to see a spin-off film of the further adventures of Joe Pettibone delivering summons and, and, and messages from the governor to people all over the state. So, yeah. What about you, Bo? Let's go with Pia first. <laughs> I actually don't have it prepared. Oh, no. All right. Who did it better? Uh, Chris or Bo, when it comes to knowing who did it better? I think it's safe to say this negates me going eight seconds over 30 seconds. What? I think, hold on. I'm hearing back from our judges now. Yeah. I think I think I'm exempt from the 30 second rule for what happened earlier this episode. Wait, I I want to know what happens when you go over. Oh gosh, do we tell her? Yeah. <laughs> Is that appropriate for the podcast? Do you bake a cake for the guest or something? In a manner of speaking. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have some innuendo. <laughs> that's done. That's innuendo done right. Uh, well, actually, we're talking about different penalties for, for going over the 30-second limit. We haven't decided yet, but we do want to punish each other. <laughs> Wait, so are, are they accumulative? Like, who? Yeah, we'll think of something. If this does go into the podcast, hey, listeners, message us on Twitter. How should we punish each other? How, how do we punish each other when we've been bad? Let us know in the in the comments on the podcast or on Twitter. On Twitter. That's a good idea. So one for which I think His Girl Friday did better. Oh! Is actually in the department of innuendo. Oh! And basically just for 
just for the reason with a lot of successful innuendo is that I think there's a lot of subtle ones that you could miss. They're memorable and they are sprinkled lightly throughout rather Ooh. than being slathered like like we talked about with, yeah. with Set It Up. Hmm. Is there one that comes to mind? I need to know if I've missed some because... Oh, there's several. Uh, one of the most famous that gets quoted a lot is when... I'm going to mess it up. He says, they're talking about a woman and it's one of these jokes that plays off how fast paced the dialogue is because mm. people can interrupt then and cut it out. And it, it, he says, um, oh, that woman, she says, oh, yeah, well, wasn't that the one with the wart on her? And then he says, Fanny. And that's the name of the woman. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, that is a good one. Yeah. yeah. Things like that. And there's also the bit about the uh, about his dimple. Oh, a big, fat oh. lummox mm. like you hiring an aeroplane to ride. Hildy, don't be hasty. Remember my dimple, Walter. Delayed our divorce 20 minutes while the judge went out to watch it. Well, I don't want to brag, but I've still got the dimple and in the same place. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Can you think of anything that uh, you would concede that Set It Up did better, Bo? It, with with Set It Up, the ones that I have are kind of more about the motivations of the movie because it's mm. not something that His Girl Friday is really trying to do. But mm. I think we mm. get a more human look at some of the corrupt figures above in His Girl Friday. They're mm -hmm. characters, they're funny characters that we can laugh at, the politicians, the sheriff, etc. With what I'm equating them to, the bosses in Set It Up, mm. we get to see a little bit more of the, the human side. And I also appreciated that they, they didn't try for perfect symmetry with hmm. the bosses they're not yeah equally terrible people just slightly different flavors that each of the one that they each have to deal with although neither of those bosses is a person that I would ever want to work for <laughs> Kirsten comes across as being a bit more sympathetic mm -hmm. and we understand her motivations a little bit more and with both of them we get to see kind of a little bit of maybe why they are the way that they are yeah as disagreeable as it is and I, I like that a, the film does have that rom-com bow on top at the end. Hey, bow. <laughs> bow on top. That's our next podcast. We'll figure out what it's about, but it's going to be called Bow on Top. I noticed the way that one of the more tropey elements was that kind of finale at the airport in, in Set It Up where he comes. I mean, they, again, they switch it up a tad where you have that dramatic airport scene. But instead yeah. of a guy screaming after a girl, wait, don't go. It's. The guy screaming after the boss of the yeah. girl because, again, his arc was, you know, overcoming his corporate rat race mentality to do the right thing for once. And so it, as tropey and cliche as it was, but you still get that moment where... I don't know what you think you're getting out of this, but you deserve better. You are better. He's crazy. You realize that, right? Hmm? What's my favorite food? Your favorite steak tartare. It's green curry, you douche tart. She likes it medium spicy from Thai Leaf on Broadway. What's my favorite place? Kiki, I can't. <clears throat> this is ridiculous. Why are we. Kirsten. Your name is Kirsten. Squam Lake, New Hampshire, you douche tart. Charlie, I know that you're no longer his assistant, but could you please strike wedding from his calendar? Absolutely. Are you being serious? No, no, Kiki's short for Kirsten. 
I feel like that in itself was unabashedly, unironically the most cliche rom-com bit in the entire movie. It, it, my, I was thinking back to like Runaway Bride, which has long been for me the top contender of the check every box on the list type of rom-com where you get like, as the film's wrapping up, everybody ends up with somebody except for the guy we don't like. And then everybody else is happy and it's just this like wrapped up in a neat, in a neat little bow. <laughs> but yeah, I did appreciate the fact that we did have of the two bosses, the lack of symmetry. That's a good way to say it. I think that, that Kirsten was of the two slightly more sympathetic without being portrayed as kind of, you know, a victim or as a, as somebody who's deserving of your sympathy or who wants your sympathy. Anyways, I think, I think both films are worth watching. Obviously, one of them is on Netflix. It costs you nothing to watch it, unless you don't have Netflix, in which case it'll cost you about, what, $9, $10? How much is Netflix these days? But check them both out, especially yeah. His Girl Friday, because it's a good movie. His Girl Friday is in the public domain through a couple things, so it's available on just about any streaming service mm. you can find. That's right. I streamed it for free on Amazon Prime. So. Yeah. And, of course, there is a nice polished-up Criterion edition that's actually... Quick plug for the Criterion Edition. It's one of my favorite in terms of packaging. Mm. It's got beautiful cover art, the essay insert. You pull it out and it folds out like a newspaper. And it comes with, I think, a 4K restoration of the front page, the original film that it's based on. Wow, that's terrific. Worth grabbing. We should do this more often. These little verbal unboxings of Criterion things—that's that's a good that's a good selling point. You know, I, I get into that because I got uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trilogy from the early '90s, and it came in a pizza box. Hey, I have pajamas of Teenage Mutant. <laughs> <laughs> are, are they footies? Yeah, <laughs> the Blu-rays come in a little pizza box. You open it like a pizza. You take the and the, the, the Blu-rays have that's little amazing. pizzas printed on them. So, hey. so I would I could get into stuff like this, having a yeah. little newspaper inside my Blu-ray case. That's the, that's what Criterion's all about. It's it's even just opening the case you're immersed. That's nice. I like that. Such a film that you even want to have something physical. Yeah. About it. Oh hey, we should uh, we should plug our social media. We never do that. Yeah, we only do that in the announcement episodes. All right, yeah. To plug our social media, you can catch us on Twitter at Streaming for Kicks with the numeral four at Streaming for Kicks. Mm. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We can use ratings and reviews. That's what helps us uh, build up and spread. That's what the algorithm pays attention to. So hop over to iTunes and Google. I don't know if Spotify allows you to leave ratings and reviews. I don't know. I listen to podcasts on there and I've never... I don't think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But you you can always find uh, Chris and I there. We're ready to, to field your comments, to listen to your ideas. Yeah, answer yeah. your questions and Pia where can we find you well first of all um, if you're such a fan as I am maybe you can get a chance to be on the podcast enter <laughs> <at some laughs> our sweepstakes you yeah, can, so you go can, and subscribe you can fight Pia for the title of number one fan I don't think that's but possible but <laughs> warning She's uh, she's done some boxing, so so be ready. <laughs> and bullfighting. Um, yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram as Pia underscore Watson. And I am DB, because you're an actor. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah. You can catch her in Half Brothers, right? Is that what the movie was called that came out like uh, 
Yeah, Half Brothers is it's streaming. Right yeah, Half Brothers is streaming right now. Yeah, check it out. Other projects coming down the pike. And yeah, your main social media being Instagram. Yes. Great. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for coming. Wonderful to have a guest right here with us in, yeah. the, in the studio. Thank I wish we could so have all of our guests right here with us. I know, I'm starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> and delightful to be able to talk about His Girl Friday, one of my favorite films. Whose Girl Friday? <laughs> 